0: Friends, let's pray. Lord Jesus, as the song that we just sang just a little bit ago says, your great descent has made us whole. It is because you descended, Lord, that we can ascend into your very life. Be with us now as we open your word. Draw us ever closer to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Last year, on June 3rd, a man by the name of Alex Hanold, he set a world rock climbing record by free climbing a 3,000-foot mountain in Yosemite National Park called El Capitan. Now, free climbing is the sport of rock climbing without any ropes or any harnesses or any really any safety equipment. The only thing that you have to protect you is your own training, your own strength, your own talent, and if anything goes wrong, well, (laughs) you fall. Now in the rock climbing world, I'm told that this was a feat that many had wondered if it could even be accomplished. And only two other professional climbers had ever uh, publicly agreed to even consider doing it. And unfortunately those two other climbers ended up dying in similar accidents on other mountains. It's a very dangerous feat that this guy accomplished. But this, but this man, Alex Hanold, he accomplished it. He climbed 3,000 feet without ropes and without safety gear. Now, that was truly an impressive feat of human strength and, human over, and overcoming of human limitation. But as impressive as that is, I read that story, and I think, thanks be to God that our salvation is not like that. You know, I, I read that, I, I, I think about that, but too often, you see, I hear Christians talking as if our salvation actually is. That, that we have this impossible task to try to attain to God, and that all we have is our own talent, that maybe, and maybe we'll make it to the top, But we know that at every twist and every turn, something could go wrong and could lead to some type of irreparable disaster. And so when we come to the passage that we're going to look at this morning in John chapter 6, it makes me truly, truly thankful that our journey towards God or our ascent towards God is not like a ropeless, free climb up a 3,000-foot vertical mountain, If that was the case, I could only imagine that God would be someone who just kind of sits up at the top of the mountain and is encouraging us saying, come on, you can do it one more step. Oh, that must have hurt. (laughs) Thank God salvation's not like that because that's not who our God is. God does not leave us to climb impossible mountains against impossible odds. See, one of the greatest accomplishments of the Protestant Reformation was the rediscovery and the rearticulation of the doctrine of the assurance of our salvation. In the high middle ages, salvation had come to had become based solely on guilt and shame and it was so overly focused on the fact that we just weren't good enough to attain to salvation that we just never knew where we stood before God. The focus was always on this this constant reminder that at any and every moment, your soul was in danger of eternal punishment and eternal destruction. And that understanding of salvation only led to a posture of constant fear before God, before the reformers, and particularly our own Thomas Cramner in particular. The fact that we are justified by faith in Christ alone That provided the ground for the assurance that our salvation is secure in Christ. Since salvation isn't something that is attainable by fallen humanity, God himself accomplishes it for us. And because of that, we no longer have to take a posture of fear or even uncertainty before God. But God's assurance of our salvation allows us to take a posture of gratitude and even love before the God who first loved us. And so this morning, we're going to look at at John chapter 6. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles if you have them. John chapter 6, starting in verse, particularly verse 37. Now, this passage, I will admit, is a pretty difficult passage, but it's key in helping us understand why it is that we really can be assured of our salvation and be assured that our salvation is secure. And so my goal for us this morning as we look at John chapter six is for us really to come away with a deeper love of the God who first loved us and has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And hopefully we're gonna see ultimately that our assurance, that the assurance of our salvation lies in the purposes of God that the assurance of our salvation lies in the promises of God, and that the assurance of our salvation ultimately lies in the person of God. So John chapter 6. Now this John chapter 6 is a continuation of last week's text. We're working our way through what's called the bread of life discourse, which comes after Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. After he does that, he has this conversation With the crowds, and he begins to explain to them that the bread that he gave to them is a sign that was meant to to point them to the fact that he is the Messiah, the King of the Kingdom of God, which satisfies not only their physical hunger momentarily, but their spiritual hunger eternally and abundantly. This passage is highly symbolic, and it's heavily based on the Exodus story of when Israel was led out of captivity um, from Egypt. And was led to the promised land. And I've tried to explain some of that over the last several weeks. But just for today, what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's pointing them back, particularly to the manna that was given to them each day, but that's spoiled every night. And last week we saw that Jesus is the true bread that comes down from heaven, that feeds them on their journey and leads them towards a new promised land, but this time it's a new promised new creation. And along the way, Jesus satisfies their hunger and ours with this true bread that is himself that never perishes and which satisfies the deepest hunger of restless hearts and of empty souls. And that's what, that's what Jesus means in verse 35 when he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger and whoever believes in me will never thirst. And so this passage that we're gonna look at in John 6 is a continuation of that invitation because Jesus invites everyone Jew and Gentile, to come to him and find life. But it's not an impossible invitation. So let's dive into this. Verse 37 is where we'll pick up. Jesus says this. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And one of the first things we notice in this particular passage is that it is founded in the purposes of God. It is founded on God's will and God's purposes. Jesus says that the will of the Father is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes should have eternal life. He also says that it's God's will that, that he would lose nothing, that nothing would be lost. And so what's going on here is that we first see that there is a prior movement of God towards us. There is a prior movement of God's towards us. God, in his infinite love and his mercy, he was not content to leave fallen humanity in in our helpless condition, but instead he purposed to send Jesus into the world. God's purposes, they weren't based on anything that was in us. It wasn't because we were good enough, it wasn't because we were talented enough or strong enough, and it wasn't because we just simply started climbing up a mountain and God decided to take pity on us and give us a little bit of help. As it says in Ephesians chapter two, we were dead in our transgressions of sin. We were dead in our transgressions in sin. There was nothing that could have moved us towards God if it was not God first moving towards us. The purpose of God or the will of God is that we would believe in the son of God and that when we believed, we would have eternal life. The reason our assurance can rest on the purpose of God is because we know that there is nothing that there is nothing in all of creation that can thwart God's purposes. God says that he would lose nothing. When God wills something to happen, it's going to happen. In all of creation, there is nothing more powerful than God. God is not at the mercy of anything he created. He's not at the mercy of any other being. Also, we know that God knows all things. And so God isn't surprised by anything, right? God, when God lays out his purposes, God's not gonna say, whoa, didn't see that coming. He's not gonna say, hey, I didn't expect that, right? No, what God wills, God makes happen. If you believe in the son of God, then you can be assured that it's God's purpose for your salvation. And as St. Paul says, he who began a good work in you, Will be faithful to bring it to completion. There is nothing that can thwart God's purposes. God sent Jesus into the world, and Jesus issues a call, issues the call of God for all to come to him. In verse 44, he says this. Jesus, again, takes this a little deeper. He says, No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And then he goes on and he says, and I will raise him up on the last day as it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught of God. Whoever has heard and learned from the father comes to me. So what Jesus is saying is that Jesus issues a call to come but he shows us a little bit more that God has purposed to draw us to Christ. This is the prior purpose of God. It's not just some random desire that God has. It is an actual work of God. Now, let me talk about this word draw for just a second. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John chapter 12, verse 32, when he talks of his impending death on the cross. And Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Now, what does he mean here? Now, it is true that over the history of the church, This particular word has been a source of contention for theologians throughout many ages. We'll just admit that. And it has led to many discussions over um, uh, over things like, do we have free will or not? And what role does that play in our salvation? That's because one way that this particular word is understood is in the sense of being forcibly dragged because we're dead in our transgressions and sin, the Father has to forcibly drag us to Christ. Now, I'm not going to argue that there's some truth in that. I'm not going to argue that there's some truth in that. However, this morning, I'm not going to get into all the philosophical debates of the freedom of the will or anything. I'm not going to do that here. I will, if you want to know more of that, I will put this offer on the table. You can buy me a latte and we'll talk all you want about that. <laughs> it's my way of trying to get free coffee. <clears throat> but I digress. I digress. So what does this mean, that the Father draws us to Christ? I think that there's something much more beautiful going on here than simply a more powerful will forcing a weaker will into submission. You see, for the Reformers in particular, and particularly the English Reformers, and Thomas Cramner in particular, they picked up on a connotation of this word that's found in a conjugation that happens in James. James chapter 1, verse 14. And in that place, it can be translated as allure or, uh, or even seduced. Now, in that, in, in, in that verse, James is actually using a negative form of that, using it to, to mean to tempt or to entice to sin or even to seduce us by playing on our lustful desires. However, the reformers ended up picking up on a more positive form of that word, allure. The reformers began to use that word in a way that describes how God draws us back, or draws our wayward hearts back to him. Listen to the words of Martin Luther, how he says this. He says, how very kindly and lovingly does the Lord allure our hearts to himself. And in this way, he stirs them to believe in him. What Martin Luther is talking about here is that God knows the deepest longings and the deepest desires of our restless heart. And what better way to draw us to Himself than through alluring us with the very thing that our hearts were created to love, that being himself? The Anglican theologian Ashley Noll says it this way. He says, "Here is the heart of the Protestant message. He says, "Love, by its very nature seeks union." Implicit with the offering of the gift of love is a calling, a wooing of the recipient's love to return to the giver of love. If God loved humanity so much as to endure the cross so that people might have assurance of everlasting life with him, then it is only those with hearts harder than stones who would not be moved to love God in return. See, God's will is to draw us to Christ by the self-giving love of the cross. That's why Christ satisfies the deepest longings of every single human heart. We find assurance of our salvation in the purpose of God. Now those purposes, they come with some pretty significant promises. Listen to Jesus. how Jesus describes the promises of God. Jesus says, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He says, I will never cast out. Not only will they not be cast out, but he even goes further. He says, and I will raise them up on the last day. So the assurance of our salvation is rooted firmly in the promises of God. And we know that God is a God who cannot lie. And that God promises that we will never be cast out. And so when he draws us to himself in love, he doesn't just then say, okay, I got you here. Now, you better behave and you better act right if you want to stay. That wouldn't be a true gift. If God knows that there's nothing in us that, that, and there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation, then there's nothing that we can do to really keep our salvation either. We're going to stumble, but yet we have the promise that comes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Because Christ is our advocate, we are able to stand secure and accepted before God. And that is an absolutely crucial point if we're going to understand what it means that we have security and assurance in our salvation. See, we love to talk about grace. We do. But often, we start moving in this grace and then all of a sudden we begin to wonder if we're actually really accepted or I wonder if we're actually really loved because there are things in our lives that that are always getting in the way and always causing us to stumble. But the truth is, is that God has accepted us when we were still sinners. Ashley Null says that it is the glory of God to love the unworthy sinner. We are saved by grace, and that means that we continue by grace. We are saved on account of Christ, and that means that we remain on account of Christ. The promise of God is that in Christ we are adopted into God's family. See, it's the will of the Father. The will of the Father is that we believe on the Son and by believing on the Son, we would become heirs with Christ. Paul tells us that in our unregenerate nature that we are children of wrath. That's who we are apart from Christ. But however... When we are brought into the love of God, we become children of God. And we are given access to everything in the Father's house. We receive all the rights and the privileges of a child living in the Father's house. And we can have assurance because God makes us to be something that we weren't before. He changes our identity from children of wrath to be heirs with Christ. And as a member of the family, we can't be cast out. J.I. Packer in his great book, in his great classic book, Knowing God, he says this. He says, look, if you want to know how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers, his whole outlook on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. God has brought us in and made us one of the family, and in doing so, he will never cast us out. The other promise that Jesus gives us is not not only that he won't cast us out, but he will raise us up on the last day. In fact, he says that phrase four times throughout the Bread of Life discourse. All that the Father Father gives me will come to me, and I will raise him up on the last day. The assurance of our salvation is rooted in the hope of resurrection, and Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of that. And as it says, as he is, so will we be also. When Jesus brings in the new creation, we have confidence that our body, that this body that is subject to death and to sin, and that these hearts that we have that are so easily led astray by lesser loves, that they'll be changed and they will be resurrected to new life that is eternal and that is united to the love of God. And so friends, we find our assurance in the purpose of God. We find our Assurance in the promises of God. But these are only based in something even more fundamental. And that's the person of God. They're based in the very person of God. You see in 1 John, again, in in chapter 4, verse 7, he says it this way. John says, Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows one. And knows God. Anyone who does not know God, I'm sorry, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so what John is doing there is he's revealing and he's talking about the very essential nature of who God is, that God in himself is love. But he, he, moves, he moves on to that. He says, he goes on and he'll tell us in the next verse just how this essential nature of this God who is love, how that's actually revealed and made manifest to us. He says this, he says, in this, the love of God has been made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we first loved God, but God loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. The love of God, the essential nature of God is made manifest in the fact that he sent, that he sent Christ into the world. The love of God is shown in the very act of the cross where God makes propitiation for our sins. Love is the essential nature of the person of God. And now this can only be true, as we've said multiple times in the past, this can only be true because God is a trinity. If God wasn't a triunity, it would be meaningless to say that God is essentially love. See, what's been revealed throughout church history and well articulated by the church fathers is that within the life of the trinity, that the father is eternally loving the son and that the son is eternally loving the father. The father. But this love that is between the Father and the Son, it is of such a nature that it's a a persona in and of itself. You see, all throughout church history, the Holy Spirit has been given the title of the bond of love. That's what it's been called. The Holy Spirit has been called the bond of love. Now that's not just means the bond of love between the Father and the Son. But it also means... The bond of love between God and humanity. You see, the love of God, even though it is complete in and of itself, God does not need us, God's love is complete in and of itself, but this love of God is not an insular love. He does not keep his love to to himself, but it overflows. The love of God is an overflowing love, and as it overflows, it creates and it gives life. But we know that what God created rebelled against him but He was, and turned away from this love of God, but he was not content to leave it that way, was he? No, he sent his son to bring reconciliation. And when the son ascended back to the father, the Holy Spirit was sent to draw the world back into the life-giving love of the Trinity because that's who God is. God is a God who draws us to, to come into the life of this, to come into the life-giving love of of the trinity well friends hopefully you see now that our salvation is not based on anything that we do and it's definitely not based on simply god just saying yeah everything's good no assurance of salvation is more than that it's god drawing us into his very life and that's based because solely of who god is based on who he is the very person of god is a god who purposes to draw us to himself and promises to never cast us away. If you think that salvation rests on your ability to, to climb an impossible mountain, friends, hopefully this morning you've been, you've been convinced otherwise. The invitation that Christ issues in this passage is one for us to just stop striving and to rest in the assurance and the trust of who God is and God's purposes and God's promises. It's an invitation to stop looking for satisfaction in lesser things of the world and to simply turn our hearts towards the one and only one who can bring true and eternal satisfaction to our hearts and to our souls. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.